Well, I'm going to be in Acts chapter 22. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Um, Something that probably many of you uh, know about me, I played baseball when I was in college. I had the opportunity of um, just traveling all over playing baseball. One of my favorite things about playing baseball was the fact that I had a team that was on. It's really hard to play baseball by yourself. And so I was just really glad that I had a team first and foremost. But one of the things that I loved about it is I played center field. And uh, I loved when my corner outfielders, the left fielder and the right fielder, they would always remind me before a pitch that they have my back. And they knew that because I was the fastest dude on the team that I would oftentimes just run and try to lay out and try to make highlight real like plays. And I loved it. I just loved that feeling. And so uh, right before one of my favorite plays I ever made, it was just so good. I can't believe I'm talking about this, but it's just awesome. Um, if I do say so myself. And uh, so <laughs> this is so bad. Um, right before I play my left fielder, he was like, hey, go for it. I got your back. And I tell you what, as a baseball player, when you know that one of your players has your back, and what that basically means is I can dive and go all out. Even if I miss it, I know he's behind me. He's going to get my back. He'll, he'll make sure. So uh, the ball was hit, obviously, and I was like, <gasps> and I got to make a diving catch, and I caught it. I was like, oh, it was sick. And then he was behind me, and he was like, yeah. And I was like, yeah. And it was just one of those moments, you know. But anyways, I learned in college and just kind of reflecting on college, there's so many things like that that happened to me. I was about 24, 25, and I started to sit back and just reflect on some of the things that God taught me. One of them is just the importance of teamwork. And I just love that concept, especially in baseball where it's up to you as an individual, and yet at the same time you're utterly dependent on your team. And your, your team is dependent on you as an individual. It's a beautiful kind of uh, ebb and flow. It's just really cool. Some other things I learned was... Um, not only is it a comfort to you to have somebody beside you when you're doing amazing things, but it's also a comfort to you when you have somebody beside you in the painful things. Um, I had an opportunity to play professionally, but then one fateful day I ran into a fence, broke my ankle, knocked myself unconscious, and was never able to play um, at the same level again. And having professional scouts say, tough break, kid, and cross you off, it was just, it was devastating. So my girlfriend at the time, who became my wife, Heather, she stood right there beside me as I walked through that painful experience to have your childhood dreams just completely dashed. Not only that, but I uh, also was reflecting on the fact that even in my greatest moments, like some of the most important moments I've ever experienced, which like, for instance, my wedding day, which happened on this very stage, I loved having my best friends with me. And I started to realize that, you know what, in amazing moments, it's always better to have people with you experiencing it. But not only that, but in painful moments, it's always better to have somebody with you so you can endure it. And then even in those just really, really important moments, it's always better to be shared. You guys understand what I'm talking about? And, and it reminds me that we as human beings are not meant to, be, to live in isolation. We're meant to be together. And I know in our American society, individualism is held up as like this great thing to accomplish and achieve. Unfortunately, it's just inhumane. We're supposed to be together. We're supposed to live in community. And this morning, actually, we get to look at Paul, who is going through just a hard time. He's been arrested. He's, threatening, he's been threatened with his life. He's going to be threatened with his life again. And in the midst of all this hardship and in the midst of all this conflict and pain, we get this beautiful truth that he is not alone, that God is with him. And I know that sounds like cliche and trite, but it's not. It's profoundly true that if you're a Christian, God is with you. That's not something to just scoff at. That is amazing. And so what we're going to see this morning as we looked in Acts chapter 22 through 23 
is that we can speak of Christ wherever God sends us. Wherever God sends us, we can confidently speak of Christ. And here's why. is because the Lord stands by us as we speak. Anytime we speak of Christ, we have to know that he's right there with us. And in that we have great confidence. So we'll pick it up in Acts chapter 22, verse 22. The reason I'm going back to 22, even though I'm supposed to be preaching on 23, is because I ran out of time last week. And it doesn't bode well for this week either. So we'll, <laughs> man, we're, okay. Let's go. Verse 22 of chapter 22. Up to this word, remember Paul's been speaking of his testimony, talking about all that God has been doing in him. Up to this word, they listened to Paul. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, and I'll stop there and just give you a picture of what in the world's going on. Paul's talking about how he encountered the resurrected Jesus, and they just continue to listen. And then he makes this statement that he, as an apostle, is sent to be a messenger to the Gentiles, and they lose their minds. So much so they're like, let's kill this guy. They're ripping their clothes off. They're flinging dust into the air. It's just chaos. And as I was reading that, I'm thinking to myself, why in, these, why in the world are these folks just, just flipping out? Like, get a grip. And then you realize, well, in the first century, uh, at this time, there was great conflict between the people group called the Jews and the people group called the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the non-Jews. You just throw anybody who's not Jewish both by race and by religion. You throw them into this category of Gentile. They hated each other. They did not associate with each other. And actually, a lot of times there was prayers being offered by Jews to, that God would destroy the Gentiles. So when you hear a message that Paul says, yes, Jesus is salvation. Jesus has resurrected from the dead. Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus told me to go to the Gentiles. And they're going, whoa, 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 no. Absolutely not. Those despicable, disgusting human beings, that's, oh, that's horrible. And so they start flinging dust and ripping their clothes, I, I think, to convince Paul that that's wrong. But I love this because it, it exactly fits with what Paul's commission was. Do you remember when Paul first got, uh, in, when he first had that encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus? It's interesting because he was blind and a man named Ananias had to come alongside of him and tell him what in the world was happening to him. And here's what Ananias told Paul. He said, go, this is what God is telling Ananias to tell Paul. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for, my, for the sake of my name. So right from the very beginning, that's Paul's commission. Jesus encounters him, says, you are an instrument of mine. You will carry my name to the nations. In fact, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15, remember, one of the letters right before he left to Jerusalem, uh, sometime in Acts 19 or 20, this is what he wrote about his commission, his purpose in life. He writes to the Roman church, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace that was given to me by God, and check this out, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Did you catch it? 
Paul's whole purpose is to go to the Gentiles, to preach them the gospel of God's grace. He picks it up also in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, right after he talks about the fact that uh, God desires all kinds of people to be saved, both Jews and Gentiles. And this is how he concludes it. He says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And the reason why he had to convince people that he was called to the Gentiles is because Jewish people had a very hard time believing that God would do such a thing. You mean to tell me that you're, you're supposed to go to the Gentiles and preach salvation? And Paul would respond, yes. Wait, that doesn't compute. What? what? Paul said, I'm not lying. This is just what I'm supposed to do. This has actually been God's plan since the very beginning. And I think the Jews probably forgot this aspect of it. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. This is where God says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. And look at what God says. I will make you as a light for the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Or Isaiah 45, 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. You see what God's saying here. He intends his salvation to extend to all nations, to the ends of the earth. And he intended for Israel to be the light that brings people to God. However, Israel failed. They became inward, they became isolated, and they began to hate their neighbors rather than love their neighbors. So God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to do what the Israelites could not do. And that is to be fully obedient and to bring people to God. And that is why the Apostle John calls Jesus the light of the world. It's in fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, what's important about this is we realize that when Jesus was sent, he was fulfilling something God intended to do from the very beginning. Isaiah 42, verses 6 through 7, this is what God says, I am the Lord, I have called you. And he's referring to a servant, a person. He says, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This servant whom God was going to provide was going to be the person to bring people out of darkness into light, to be the light to the nation so that people would be saved. That's exactly who John the Apostle in the book of John says Jesus is. He is the light of the world. He is the Savior. And what's really interesting in Luke chapter 2, a chapter that we'll talk about a lot because of Christmas nowadays, there was an old man named Simeon, and he was told through the Holy Spirit that he would see God's salvation. So Mary and Joseph are bringing Jesus into the temple, and Simeon sees them, walks over, scoops up baby Jesus into his hands, and he begins to say this, Lord... Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And look at this in verse 32. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Even Simeon knew in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus was for all people to save them. Now this is an important component. And the whole reason why Paul brings this up is because he understands that the gospel has significant implications for race relations and how we view one another. 
And what's really important to understand is at this time, man, there was racial conflict. And I don't know if you've had your head buried in sand somewhere, but in America, there's some racial conflict going on. So when we read something like this, we see that this, it starts in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. The whole thing starts with the therefore, which means this is the conclusion. Here is the outpouring of what everything came, that everything came before. Verses 1 through 10 is all about the gospel. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God made you alive together with Christ Jesus. It's not because of your works. It's because of his grace. We are workmanship in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand. Therefore... This is the good works. This is the message that needs to go out. And this is the implications of the gospel. This is the effects of the gospel. And read this. It's going to be lengthy, but, but hang with me. Verse 11, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. By the way, name calling is one of the signs that you're probably not getting along. Right? Verse 12, remember that you, Gentiles, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Well, that's encouraging. And then the next word, I love it, but, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Wow! When you read that, you start to realize, okay, Jew, Gentile, hate each other, racial conflict. And then you read this, in Jesus, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. It's been abolished. And now where the two and animosity once existed, no more. There's peace. There's oneness. There's one church. There's one body. There's one Christ. There's one baptism. There's one spirit and one God over all of us. And when you look at that, you're like, whoa, no wonder why Paul mentioned it. It's important that people understand that God wants a church made up of every people group. Not only that, though, but then he begins to go on in chapter 3 of Ephesians and talk about the purpose of the church, which is significant. Look at what he says. He says, for this reason, for the reason I just mentioned, he said, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Or in other words, I'm in prison for you to bring the gospel to you. That's why I'm in prison. I don't think he's trying to let guilt trip, but he's just trying to remind them. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the same spirit. And here's the mystery. 
The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. And to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And look at this in verse 10. All this is for this purpose, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you understand that God's primary plan to how to reach the nations is through the local church? Verse 10, it is God's plan that through the church, the nations will be reached with the gospel. That's why I love being a part of this church, because we keep uh, the global mission and, and, and global outreach, we keep that in the forefront of our minds because we recognize that this, what we're engaged in as a church, is God's plan. This isn't our plan. This isn't our doing. This is God's doing. So every time you give and you pray and you go, you're engaging with what God seeks to do through his church. It's amazing. And I'm so grateful to be a part of it. All right, so that's why they're ripping their clothes off and flinging dust in the air because they cannot believe that this is true. And by the way, the gospel is in some t- sometimes when you think about it, you're like, this is unbelievable. That's amazing. You mean there's actually racial reconciliation that can come about and it isn't through politics, it's through the church? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Amazing. All right, let's keep going. Verse 24 of chapter 22 in Acts. The tribune ordered him, that being Paul, to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. You guys know what flogging is? When you get whipped, and on the end of all the whips are jawbones and sharp pieces of pottery. So they're interrogating him, how? By torture. So they brought him into the barracks to torture him, to ask him some questions, why they were shouting this and that. Verse 25, when they had stretched Paul out for the whips... Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, uh, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. This is Paul leveraging his legal rights. Hey, uh, can you torture me and beat me um, even though I haven't been condemned? Oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. So if you do this, you're probably going to get killed. I like how Paul works, man. He waits. Why did he say it at the beginning? Why did he wait until he's all strapped in? You know, oh, by the way, I got something to tell you. <laughs> so they call it off. Look what happens, verse 27. So the tribune, remember the leader of, of the imperial guard that's there. So the tribune came and said to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Paul said, yeah. The tribune answered, well, I bought my citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, yeah, but I'm a citizen by birth. Gotcha. Uh, It's not in there. But anyways, (laughs) verse 29. So those who were about to examine Paul, or in other words, torture him, withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul's a Roman citizen and that he had bound him up. Why is he so afraid? Because he can lose his life, not just his job, his life if he touches Paul. So Paul takes advantage of that opportunity and he says, what are you guys doing? But you see the tribune, the guy who's in charge, he's just confused. Like, what is going on with this guy, Paul? Why is everyone so angry with him? 
So in verse 30, on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet together. And he brought Paul down and set them before him. So he's still seeking some truth. He's not quite at a place where he realizes what in the world's going on. So he asked them, uh, come and talk some more. Here's what happens. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who, were, who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law you are to me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, oh, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. I love this. I asked myself the question, why in the world did Ananias get all hot and bothered about what Paul said? And the reason is this. The, the Greek word that Paul uses here where he says, uh, I have lived my life before God, the word is also translated citizen. You know, like when he was asked the question, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, yeah. And so basically what Paul is saying is like, look, yeah, I've lived my life. Or in other words, I'm a citizen of God's kingdom. And, and he says, well, and I've lived in all good conscience up to this day. In other words, me preaching Jesus is me being a good, faithful citizen of the kingdom of God. And then he gets smacked in the mouth. No, the Jews would say, the kingdom of God is about making sure the Gentiles don't get in. And you are not being faithful to that. You are not being a good citizen, so they smack them. But I love what happens here. Then Paul says, you whitewash walls, which is reminiscent of when Jesus called people, you whitewash tombs, which means on the outside you're really beautiful, but on the inside you're, you're dead. And notice what happens. He says this, are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you hit me in the mouth? You hypocrite? So wait, you, you claim that you know the law and you're going to judge me according to the law, and yet your judgment is in opposition to the law. Yeah, this, is, this makes sense. And then they said, how dare you revile him? And then look what Paul does just to reinforce the fact that they don't know the law as well as they think they do. He quotes it to them. Yeah, it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Or in other words, you claim to know the law, yet you break the law and hit me in the mouth. I'm going to quote to you the law, which is going to bring conviction. And then what Paul does next is really cool. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. And it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. I love what Paul does here because he sizes up his audience. Looking at them, and he's going, oh, Pharisees. Oh, Sadducees. Oh, I know what to do. And, and Luke helps us with understanding why Paul is doing this. Verse 7. Remember, remember Paul said it's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial? And here's verse 7. A dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Why? Verse 8. Because the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. So stop there. Okay, the Sadducees do not believe in resurrection, spirit, angel. What about the Pharisees? But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. 
So if you ask the question, Pharisee, do you believe in the resurrection? Yep. Angels? Yep. Spirit? Yep. All right. So Paul says, I'm here because of the resurrection. Now notice what Paul's doing. He's making sure that this indictment of him isn't all about him. He's making sure that the people understand what's going on here. This isn't about Paul. This is about Jesus. This isn't about Paul rising from the dead. This is about Jesus rising from the dead. And he wants to make sure the gospel is front and centered. So then a great clamor arose. And some of the scribes of the Pharisees stood up and they contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. You know why they did that, right? Because Paul's saying there's a resurrection. So the Pharisees stand up and go, well, we believe in the resurrection. And if we convict him, we convict ourselves. We got to look out for ourselves. This man's innocent because his innocence is our innocence. You see what's happening here. But if you look at the next question, you can see that they actually don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Here's their question. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Okay, so, so how many things did they mention in that question? Two. Spirit, angel. But remember, the whole context is about resurrection, spirit, and angel. So the Pharisees themselves are like, yeah, the whole resurrection of Jesus, I'm not touching that. Not interested. And it shows that not only the Sadducees, but these Pharisees themselves, they do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, this is important. Because Paul, in one of the letters right before he went to Jerusalem in 1 Corinthians, he talks about the centrality of the resurrection. Look at what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you Christians say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Okay, you guys get that. You preach that Jesus risen from the dead, and yet you don't believe that he rose from the dead. Something's wrong here. Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. It's empty, it's void, it's hollow, and you are still in your sins. Or in other words, you have not been forgiven of sins if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You're still going to hell. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Or in other words, they're, they're in hell. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We as Christians, if there's no resurrection from the dead, we might as well stop being Christian. Just get rid of that restraint and stuff. Go, go live however you want and send your brains out. Who gives a rip? It's not like anything's going to happen anyways. You're, already, you're going to hell no matter what. But see, Paul's argument is like, no, 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 no. The resurrection legitimately happened. And in fact, we had an apologetics conference back in March where we, we were shown all the historical evidence for uh, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. All of Christianity hinges and hangs on the resurrection of Jesus. You can't deny it and still be a Christian. But praise God that Jesus did rise from the dead because that means sins are forgiven and that does mean we don't have to go to hell anymore. Praise God for resurrected Jesus. And Paul exposes them. I'm on trial because of the resurrection of Jesus. And you guys don't believe it. So, verse 10, a dis the dissension became violent. People, they were afraid that Paul was going to be torn to pieces. 
So the tribune comes and takes Paul away, takes him back to the barracks. Now here's one of the most beautiful things that happens to Paul, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him. Jesus stood by Paul, and he says to him, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Jesus stood by him. I'm here. And then he tells him, what happened to you in Jerusalem is about to happen in uh, Rome. You know, when you, in the first words are take courage. Be, be encouraged. Be strengthened. Take heart. What happened to you in Jerusalem is about to happen to you in Rome. Or in other words, suffering here, suffering there. But don't worry. Take courage. Do you see what's happening here? We as good Americans, what we would think God would say is, hey, be encouraged, be strengthened. I'm going to take away all your pain and suffering. I'm going to make sure that you don't have to deal with this anymore. I'm going to take it away. I'm going to hug you and we'll be in our secret place and I'll, I'll hum to you and, and everything will be great. <laughs> Jesus doesn't say any of that. What Jesus says is take courage. Just as you suffered in Jerusalem, you're going to suffer in Rome. Where's the courage in that? Where is the, like, encouragement? Where is the take heart? And I realized one of the things that we don't do a good job of as Christians is helping each other through painful things by quoting to one another scripture. What we do is we come up with these silly little, like, I don't sayings that are hollow and shallow that don't even make sense we don't even remember. So what you need most this morning is not for Phil Ward to give you eloquence. What you need is Phil Ward to read some scripture. Like last week when I ended on the promises of God, it's going to set your soul sailing. This morning, let's read some promises of God and let's see what God does in our soul. Now, this is why it's super important, I think. The word of God will never return void. It is alive. It is active, sharper than two, any two-edged sword. So let's get to the scripture. How can Paul be encouraged in the midst of his hardship and suffering? And what I did was I, I just I thought about this and I'm like, Lord, how, how, how am I going to put before the people, your people, how am I going to put before them the promises of God, comforted, encouraged? How am I going to do that? And so I read all of Paul's letters and I go, okay, here we go. So I, I got some for you. I'm almost out of time, so I'm going to minimize it, but hang with me, okay? 2 Timothy chapter 4. Here's what Paul is thinking towards the end of his life. Thinking about being in prison, he says, The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then Paul gives this promise in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And so what Paul is saying is like, look, you want to be strengthened? You're strengthened by the presence of God and the person of Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And the grace of God is your strength. And he goes on, and I'm going to read some stuff. Here we go. Ephesians 3, verse 14. Here's a prayer that you might want to memorize. Here's something you might want to take to heart. Here's something you want to put on a mirror. I don't know if you do that, but do that. Verse 14. 
For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, what is the length, what is the height, and what is the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, not to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if you're struggling and suffering in any kind, any kind of suffering, any kind of pain, you don't need to Google like encouraging quotes. Read Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. Read it, pray it, believe it. And I'm telling you what, God will do something in you that will just knock you. Remember he said, far beyond what we think or imagine. Try it. And, and you remember the, the most famous verse on suffering and, and strength and weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, he, that it should leave me. Three times Paul's pleading with God, take this pain from me. Take this pain, take this, and then you put in your pain. Take this cancer, take this relational conflict, take this from me. Three times. But here's how God responded. My grace, which is your strength. Remember what he said? Remember what Paul said? The grace of God is our strength. It's power. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And here's Paul's conclusion. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Holy smokes, you kidding me? And remember Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That does not mean you can jump higher and run faster. That means no matter what, no matter what you're in, painful, conflict, suffering, trial, no matter what you're in, in Christ, you have all that you need to endure. He is sufficient. You have to trust it. When I think about this, here's some conclusions. We have to realize that the presence of God is our encouragement. The promises of God are our hope. The grace of God is our strength. The Holy Spirit is our helper. The kingdom of God is our true citizenship. And the church of God is our family. Because every single one of you have come in here this morning and you are in some sort of fight you are fighting a physical ailment. You are fighting a relational conflict. You are wondering why your kids are misbehaving, why your spouse is a moron. Just all kinds of stuff that you are fighting. And the reality is this, is you feel like you can't do it. I can't, can't do this anymore. Christ is sufficient. His power is made perfect in your weakness. Persevere, don't give up. But it's not this health help mumbo jumbo about you have what it takes. No, you don't have what it takes. Jesus has all that you need, and He is the one that you need, and He is the one that will supply you with what you need. 
it, th there's no magic antidote to this kind of stuff. And I hate seeing it where people put their hope in these like little sentimental statements of, you know, this and that and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just going, man, just trust the promises of God. That's all we can cling to. Cling to Christ for nothing else will satisfy. I think that's, all right, I have a couple minutes. So take courage, be strengthened. And then all of a sudden what happens to Paul is just, I think is one of the coolest stories. And if I was more creative, I might be able to make a movie out of this. But I'm not, so I won't. But maybe you are, so maybe. Here's what happens the next day. The Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Whoa. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Uh-oh. But look at this, verse 18, or 16. Now, the son of Paul's sister, in case you're keeping score, that's his nephew, Paul's nephew heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul, they're going to try to kill you. Dun, dun, dun. So then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him into the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this man to you as he has something to say to you. So the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you want to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire something more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, don't tell anyone that you have informed me of these things. Dude, this is so, the plot is just thickening. Like, What's going to happen? So this is what I love. Remember, remember the tribune was the instrument the Jews wanted to use to kill Paul. Look at how God uses the tribune as an instrument to rescue Paul. Verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions, two guards, and he said, get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, which is 9 p.m. in the cover of darkness. Do you see what's happening? 40 guys who are hungry and thirsty and probably weak against 470 soldiers. You see what's happening here? God's making sure that Paul is going to be protected because God wants Paul to get to Rome. And God's going to do whatever he needs to do to make sure that Paul gets to Rome because that's what God wants to happen. Isn't that awesome? And so they provided, look at this verse 24, they provided mounts or a horse or a donkey or something for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. What was going through Paul's mind is he is like riding a donkey and he's got 470 soldiers protecting him. He's like, dude, I feel invincible right now. This is amazing. And so they write a letter to Felix, the governor. And now we know the name of the tribune. His name is Claudius Lysias. And so he writes this letter. And I love what he says. He says uh, to his excellency, the governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I, when I came upon them with the soldiers and I rescued him. 
give him some grace. I mean, like, he rescued this guy four times. So, all right, he's bragging a little bit. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they accused him, I brought him down to the council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their own law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the tribune, Claudius Lysias, saves Paul's life, sends him to the governor Felix in a place called Caesarea. And next week when Larry preaches, we get to see the next three chapters of what happens to Paul when he's on trial and how he continually testifies to the resurrection of Jesus over and over and over. And he realizes, you know what, wherever God sends me, guess what, I'm going to confidently speak of Christ. And why is it that Paul can be so confident in speaking of Christ? Because Paul in verse 11 had Jesus come stand right next to him. Remember when Jesus said, I will be with you. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. And we will never outlive Jesus. Therefore, he will always be with us. And that promise is something that Paul took to heart. And so when he stood before governors and rulers, he preached Christ faithfully. And look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. This is Paul thinking back to his imprisonment about how it's going and what God was up to. And this is what he concludes. I want you to know, he writes to the Philippian church, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. How is it that we can live without fear? It's by believing the promises of God. He is with us. So we can speak confidently of Christ wherever God sends us, before whomever, because we know that in our speaking, the Lord stands by us. And not only that, you remember the promise in Luke chapter 12? Don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't worry about it ahead of time. Because in that moment, the Holy Spirit will give you exactly what you need to say. Do you trust that? Man, that's good. So, Father, help us. You've given us these promises. We are to live faithfully under and, and in these promises. And so I pray, God, that you would help us as a church, as your church, to do what Ephesians 3.10 talks about, that through this church that you would reach the nations because that's your plan, not ours. And I pray that in this church, Lord, you would help us to be reconciled to one another. And God, as, as, Paul, uh, excuse me, as John had that vision in, in Revelation 5 where they were singing a new song, that worthy are you, O Lord, to take the scroll and to open it, for by your blood you have ransomed people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation and every people group. That is the culmination and the conclusion of the effects of the gospel, a kingdom comprised of people from all walks of life. That's what we want, Lord. So help us as a church to get there. We need you. So do it in us and through us, by your grace, for your glory, for our joy. Amen.